Good morning. Before I get started, I, I noticed uh, a family walk in, and I wanted to acknowledge them now. Um, Daniel and Ashley Reist, welcome, and welcome to your new baby, Ailey Marie. Uh, it's so amazing and so glad that you're able to join us. Um, yes, stand. And not one week old, is that right? Not even one week old? Yeah, so that is a precious little baby. So good, so lovely. Um, uh, God's family, it's such an exciting thing for us to be able to celebrate with you and to be able to celebrate um, these kinds of life transitions. Now, for the past month, we've been in a sermon series on the topic of prayer. Um, prayer is that critical activity and practice for all Christians. Um, it is an act of faith. It is that act of obedience. Um, and it is effective. Um, it's that vital connection that we to, are able to interact with God through Jesus Christ. We are the branch and he is the vine. Um, without that intimacy, without that connection, we wither, we won't produce the fruit that God is desiring for us to produce. We won't produce the fruit that we desire to produce in our own lives. And if we as a church are not a church who prays, we will lack that vitality and that strength, that conviction to be the church that God is asking us to be. For us to be a church that is a worshiping community in awe of God and his unfailing love. A worshiping community committed to knowing and reflecting the life of Jesus and his kingdom. A worshiping community that is energized and empowered by the Spirit to live holy and free, pointing others to the life and salvation of Jesus. None of this is possible if we're not a church that prays. Um, that's why for the past few weeks, we've also been handing out these little prayer challenges. Um, and these little prayer challenges are just an invitation for you to practice new ways and new methods of prayer so that you have more than one avenue to come to the Father, to come to the throne. Um, there'll be another one of those at the end of this service as well, and then for future services all the way up into uh, Easter Next week, I'm going to be pointing out uh, one of the key areas for us to enjoy prayer is the directed life. What does it mean for us to pray in the Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit guide us in our prayer lives? Then after that, we're going to go on, on Palm Sunday. I'm going to be reflecting on how does worship and prayer connect? How does worship unlock the life of prayer? How do these things go together? And then on Easter Sunday, um, we're going to conclude the series by celebrating the risen and ascended Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father, who is our advocate and who provides intercession for us. Jesus is interceding for us. And how does that give us hope? Why does that give us hope in a hurting world? So these are just little snippets. I know this is just news and information. I want to say one more thing, though. As I was preparing and thinking, I really have been feeling led and convicted that we can't just stop at the end of Easter, but there needs to be opportunities for prayer to continue on. And that's why I've decided to offer a eight-week prayer course after Easter that I'm inviting anybody 
to be able to join in on. It'll be midweek. I'm working out the details of what day will be best. It's going to be biblical. It's going to be theologically sound, and it is going to be very practical. You could say that it's going to be both a class and a lab. So if you're university students, you can kind of picture what the difference is, right? There's the, the lecture, and then there's like the let's try this out. And we're going to combine those two things. So this, this could be for anyone. Um, if you have no idea how to pray, this is a class for you. Um, if prayer intimidates you, this is a safe place for you to learn how to pray. Um, if you used to pray, but you've lost that spark, join me and let's ignite our prayer life together. If you love prayer and you've mastered it, like you've got it down, well, humble yourself. Come, join in and learn, learn something new. Apply a new idea to your prayer life to strengthen it and grow it. The enemy hates prayer. He, he hates it when you pray. And that's why in so many ways it's so hard for us to pray. We, we, we find ourselves getting stuck or caught, unable to pray with others. It is something the enemy hates. And I truly believe that it is a primary attack on our church, on the church, to convince us that we don't need to pray, that we can do ministry without prayer, that we can set the course of a church without prayer, that we can conduct business without believing that the voice of God has something to say about it, that we can produce fruit without remaining in the vine, that the church can ignore what is said in Mark Chapter 11, verse 17, when Jesus, in his frustration and his anger, enters the ta into, into the temple and is flipping over tables and he cries out. He's like, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. I haven't started preaching yet, just so you know. Like, this is just, like, I, I just wanted to tell you about where we're at as a church, you know? So, you know, if you need to just, like, shake your head and be like, okay, Trent is starting now. I'm not going to hold judgment over how long he preaches this Sunday. I'll do my best. Anyway, just kidding. Um, but it is a primary attack, right? That's one of the main barriers is that the enemy would cause us to not pray. One of the barriers for prayer we, is, we participate in. This is part of our own lives. That we, have a, we, we keep our distance from God. We stay distracted. And, and then we are removed from a life of joy when we have barriers to prayer. There are real and significant barriers in, with our intimacy with God. Roadblocks to prayer that if we ignore them, um, it cripples our prayer life and could very well erode your faith. So today, let's look at a big one. And we'll start with a simple story, a true story in my life. I've got a photo I'm going to throw up. It's a fairly innocuous photo. Um, it's a mug. This mug is not my mug. This mug is my roommate's mug, and I broke it. Um, um, Mark knows that, I, that it got broken eventually, he found out. Um, so this mug got broken. So what happened one day is I was taking this mug out of the uh, dishwasher and it just, I, I barely, barely nicked it against the edge of the counter and the handle just broke off. It, I think it was already broken before, I'm sure. <laughs> and so it broke off and I thought to myself, 
oh no, and you've been there. What's running through your mind? All of the ways, all of the opportunities to get away with this. So I thought to myself, I have some Gorilla Glue not far away. So I went over to the cupboard, took it out, and I like put some drops on it, and like, I've like, you know, and then I'm like pushing it down. I'm like, this might actually work. And then I'm like, oh, I need to make sure it dries. So I need to make sure he doesn't see it while it's still drying. So I put it in a very safe you know, dark spot until I could take it out and I gently tested it. I didn't want to test it too much because if I broke it again, then I'd have to do the process all over again. But I was like, it is, it's holding on just enough that the next time he uses it, <laughs> right? Right? The next time he uses it, it might break. And then it's all his fault. He'll take responsibility. <sighs> Trent's off the hook. Well, um, I've attached it and a, a week goes by, another week goes by, and it's not breaking. And then one day, months down the road, I, it, I was like, you know what? This has gone long enough, but it's still like this like, little like, niggle in my heart. I'm like, you know what? I need to tell him. So I actually did tell him, and I was like, hey, just so you know, I broke your mug months and months and months ago, but as, as you can tell, it's clearly fine. He's like, I wondered what that like, weird yellowy ring was. And it's like, yep, yep, sorry, you know what? That, but you know what? I had waited until I felt like it was safe, right? But if that mug had broken any earlier, or if something had gone wrong, it would have been a very different story. For those of you who spend time around children, uh, it's hilarious to see how they try to hide their broken toys, how they try to manage the brokenness that they've, that's occurred. Whether it's literally just hiding it or they like shove it under their beds. And they do it in such obvious, hilarious ways. And we as adults, we can see this. Well, we, we mostly understand it because we see their actions reflected in our own lives. Just, they just haven't honed the skills of deception like us adults have mastered over the years. The ability to perfectly craft a way to stay hidden, a way to find excuses, a way for us to avoid or distract with flattery. That works really well. You know, just like throw on the flattery or change the subjects, find excuses. So this is so instinctive in all of us, right? That, that desire to, if something goes wrong, if there's something broken, we, we hide it. We need to hide it. We don't want the shame of it. We don't want to experience all of the pain of the guilt that comes with this. Some of you might sense where this story, where this conversation is headed. If you already think you know the ending, I just encourage you to stay with me through this because I really believe that God has something good for all of us in the conversation and the questions around why hidden sin? Why do we hide the things that need to come to the surface? This is a struggle for all of us. This is the struggle that we have seen throughout history, throughout Scripture. Scripture is full of stories of people choosing to hide when they could bring things forward and bring themselves forward towards God. We have the stories of people like King Saul, right? King Saul was told to destroy all the items of the enemy, but he didn't. Then Samuel the prophet, right, he comes and he comes up to Saul and says, hey, 
What's going on? He's like, oh, nothing. Everything's fine. He totally denies the situation, pretends nothing's happening. And then Samuel presses in. This is a fascinating story in 1 Samuel. He's like, are you sure? And then he's like, okay, I know I was supposed to like not keep any of the items, but I, the, the men, they, I, I wanted them to keep the plunder. I was afraid of them. He makes all of these excuses. He's like, I was afraid. Eventually, Saul is cornered he has no way to get out of it no more excuses and he finally says okay i've sinned i violated the lord's command and your instructions i was afraid of the men and so i gave it to them isn't that okay um but then he continues on and it gets actually worse right so then he turns to samuel and he says okay I, like i've sinned but please Honor me in front of all of the people. Is that okay? Could you do that? Like, I know I've screwed up, but like, don't make me look bad in front of the other people. So that's his story. And then we have David. It's a classic story. It's the story that in many, in all likelihood is he's reflecting back in Psalms 32, the events of his life, particularly that great and terrible season when he looks down, he sees Bathsheba, uh, uh, bathing, and he has lust in his heart for her. He goes after her. He probably rapes her. It doesn't say it in Scripture. I'm going to step out on an edge. It's, it's murky, but there's not enough evidence to say that this was just purely mutual. He's a king with all the authority, and she is a married woman over here. These are complicated things. I just want to acknowledge that there's tension here. He chooses to enter into this dark, dangerous place. He has relations with this wife, or with this woman. She ends up getting pregnant. He tries to hide the problem by inviting her husband to come home from battle, and he says, please, come sleep with her. Like, sleep with your wife. Be with her. Be, like, trying to make sure that if there's ever evidence of the pregnancy, that it would all fall to, oh, it's just the family. It's just the couple. Everything's fine. But he says, I can't do that. It wouldn't be right for me to be able to enjoy my time with my wife while I, all of my men are out fighting and in conflict. I'm not going to do it. It's dishonorable. And so he doesn't do it. So what does David do? We know that he takes it one step further to try to hide this whole situation. He puts, uh, he puts Uzziah up to the front of the battlefield where it's very likely that he gets killed. And that's exactly what happens he gets killed. So King David has, has gone from adultery to murder, and now he's still trying to hide it all, and then he feels like he's free to marry Bathsheba because she's now a widow, and it's just dark and sad. And then when he's cornered by Nathan, and Nathan exposes this reality in front of him, he crumbles to the ground, he weeps, and you, we, we see the picture of it even in Psalms 32, that his bones were aching. He had this grief hidden inside of him, but he was still unwilling to come forward and confess until he was cornered, until he was pressed. And while that's an extreme case, this relates right to our own lives, right to our own story. And it relates all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's the story of the human condition, right? Right? 
Adam and Eve, they are loving life. They are enjoying walks with God. They are in fellowship. And then they make a choice. They choose wrongly. And then they hide. What happens? They hear God's voice in the, in the desert. They, they are in the garden. They hear him. And they think, oh, that's God. He's walking in the garden. You know what we should do? We should probably hide. So they hide. And then what does God do? He's like, hey, I'm here. I'm walking. Normally you hang out with me in this situation. Normally we go for nice walks in the cool of the evening through the garden. You can just picture prior to this event what it was like for Adam and Eve to enjoy those walks with their creator. Talking. God being like, Adam, so tell me why the name platypus. Tell me more. Why did you name this end? Or why did you do this? And it's just this beautiful life of prayer. Walking with God. Life of prayer. And they are in these conversations and it's beautiful. And then one day, God shows up. He's, he's going for his walk. And his creation, his people, his kids are nowhere to be found. And so he calls out, he cries out, where are you? And sheepishly, knowing that they've been cornered, knowing that they have no other option, they come out of their hiding and they admit to this class of thing. We, we heard you in the garden and we were afraid, so we hid. God enters the garden, why? To be in fellowship with us, to, to walk with us. God walk, shows up into the coffee shop where you know, he waits at the table to meet you. And then when we don't show up, what does he do? Like a good dad or a friend, he gets on the phone, right? And he calls, where are you? This is that picture that at one point when we heard the voice of God, with anticipation and excitement, we would go running to our dad. We would go running to the father, expecting love, expecting goodness, expecting connection. But hidden sin causes us to hide hidden sin unconfessed sin unconfessed struggle causes us to pull away to choose a barrier to sin or choose a barrier to prayer how can we go to a place of prayer when we're in a state like that there prayer is too intimate it's too vulnerable to be able to go into a place like that while still holding on to and carrying struggles and burdens, things that we're unwilling to talk to the Lord about. And so we have this natural barrier to prayer, hidden sin. King David, he gives us a glimpse into the effects of this, the effect of hidden sin. Not only do we see the externals, which is escalating sin, right? One sin leads to another, to another. One lie to another, to more hiding. And it just grows and grows and grows until eventually, by God's mercy, it all ends. But we read in Psalms 32, what does it say? It says that your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. I wonder, can, can any of you relate to this today? Was this just poetic imagery or was David articulating something very real? Um, author and pastor John Mark Comer in his book, 
my name is hope? He, he puts it this way. Could it be these physical symptoms of pain and exhaustion are the result of what's going on deep inside the soul? In David's case, hidden sin was sapping his energy and leaking out of his body in aches and pains. The human soul was not designed to bear the crushing load of guilt. Unconfessed, habitual sin suffocates the soul's life and sucks our energy right out. God built us to live in transparency and vulnerability, not in hiding. One-time sins are bad enough. Blunders, mistakes, and failures result in all kinds of pain. But ongoing, hidden sin is a thousand times worse. It numbs us. Slowly but surely, your body adapts to the pain. It creates calluses around the soul. You stop feeling God, feeling the Spirit's conviction. You stop feeling alive. Prayer becomes fake. The Bible becomes wooden and tasteless. Heaven feels a million miles away. These are the results of hidden sin. Can any of you relate to that? Yeah, it's a tough place to be. It's a tough place to find ourselves. And it's really hard to find ourselves in that place when we attend a church that makes it feel really hard to be honest about our brokenness and our sin. Because soon as, as soon as we put our hand up and said, I've been hiding, I've been broken, it kind of feels like we're saying something's been wrong with us and we're afraid of that human judgment. But I see in David, in Psalms 32, unlike Saul, who wanted to, yeah, yeah, I sin, but please like, make sure I look good in front of everyone still. David, he mourned and fasted for days. He made it seen. He made it known. He had no regard for that. He didn't care because what he knew is that he had sinned against God and God alone, and he needed to make that right, and nothing else mattered. He even penned it in our Bible. Like, the, the, the great king David has written for all mankind, for all humanity, for eternity, to know how much he screwed up. And despite all of that, God still account, like still sees him as good and righteous, and that the line of David was secure, perhaps because of that vulnerability, because of that transparency, because of the willingness to write it down in poetry, his grief and his anguish and his screw-ups and his failures. And so in Psalms 32, we see this turn, we see this picture from, from a, a weight and a burden to what was the last line, and it said this, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. He's actually able to say that about himself, while verses before, it was heavy on him, and he felt the pain, he felt the weight. But it was through his period, through that transition, through that time 
of owning it and confessing it and bringing it before the Lord that he encountered God's grace and his goodness and his love and it freed his life to be able to see clearly what is going on in the life of God. That while in the garden, while men and women are hiding, God is looking. God is hunting for, desiring to redeem his people. That the hand of God was heavy on him, bringing conviction, bringing him weight. But then eventually it went from the hand of God to the love of God, the unfailing love of God we see. That is the unfailing love of God that those who trust in him get to know and experience. And until you bring it all before the Lord, I don't know if you're ever going to really understand how much he loves you. Because when you withhold yourself, you'll never know that he's going to love and forgive and redeem and care about you in the way that he can and scripture reveals him to be. Mostly, primarily within Jesus Christ. The man who saw it all and responded with generosity, compassion, and care. And this is the beautiful thing about the power of confession. That while hiding, we hide from God. But in confession, it gets brought forward, it gets brought into the light, and it brings transformation. David could have gone the way of Saul, but he chose a different path. He chose the love of God. Yeah, so if hiding, if hiding is, is what separates us, if hiding is what disconnects us from God because of sin and struggle, if that's the barrier, confession is a powerful tool that smashes that barrier. It's where we can encounter the love of God. It's where we can be reminded that we actually are forgiven. And we can be ultimately brought back into fellowship, into community. Uh, let me quote from John Mark again. I think he says it really well. The habitual, regular, rhythmic practice of confession is key to the life of the soul. Confession starts with God. You open up in prayer. You are honest. You admit you have a problem. You ask for forgiveness. You repent, turn away, ask for help, move on. David, he had a son, Solomon. As we know from the story of Bathsheba, that's the child that they had. And years later, this king um, reflects with this quote from Proverbs. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. God wants more out of us. We need to take it to the next level. Um, and sometimes that need moves us. God moves us past just private, quiet confession to sharing with someone else, to confession to others. James says in his, in his book, in his letter, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Something powerful and liberating 
happens when we open up with brothers and sisters in Jesus and confess sin and struggle. Freedom comes, new life, healing. God blesses the confessor's humility and honesty and answers the other's prayer. And our brothers and sisters in Jesus become emissaries of God's grace and forgiveness, confirming that scriptures claim that we we have a right to know God, a right to experience him, that we can come with repentance, experiencing regeneration, experiencing forgiveness. They help us step back into our joy. They help us step back into joy. Confession and prayer are far more effective than aspirin and caffeine in dealing with achy bones, tired bodies, and guilty souls. Maybe a little bit of both. Confession has the power to give us life and break down barriers that have existed in our lives for perhaps a long time. Fear keeps us hidden. Fear of God keeps us from ever encountering that love of God and that grace. But when we come and we just let him, let him know, let it be seen by him, we find freedom. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I really started to practice confession in my life. I was in university. Um, I was really excited about my life of faith and my life with the Lord. And I and a friend, just through conversation, we just realized we need to make this something real. We need to put this into practice. And so me, Tyler, and Jesus, we got honest. We would go for these long walks down by the river, and we would confess sins, possible sins, where we were tempted, where we weren't sure if this was a sin or not. We were essentially trying to live out John Wesley's bands, right? In the Methodist movement, there was the bands that they would gather and they ask questions. How have you sinned? How have you think maybe you've sinned? Or what have you struggled with? They just, everything was on the table because then everything can be used as transformation in our lives. So we didn't hold back. And I'll be honest, Confessing my weird thoughts, my uncertainties, my temptations, it's humbling. It is hard. It's uncomfortable. But in doing that, in actually saying these things out loud, not just whispering them at home in the quiet of my own heart to the Lord, something else profound is able to happen. Because we're not just dying, dying to ourselves in confession to the Lord, but by sharing it with another person, we are... We're making it more real. We're making it tangible. And then what becomes also more tangible is the forgiveness. So after we'd share everything that we needed to share with each other, my friend and I, um, then we would turn to each other and we said, if what you've said and like, if you're sorry for what you've been bringing up and you, you desire transformation, then I can pronounce, I can declare to you that Jesus has forgiven you. And we would do this for each other. And the, the burden that that would take off our shoulders, the freedom that we would feel because we were willing to make that kind of confession one to another, deeply transformative, deeply healing, and very humbling. Uh, someone wisely said this, don't tell God uh, what you really want to be free from 
if you insist on hiding it and being silent about it. When we openly confess it, we are in effect saying, I want that destructive thing in my life to die. And when we share it out loud with others, and don't worry, at the end of this service, I'm not going to make you stand up and declare your... And that's not where we're heading. The call, however, is that you consider deeply what it would mean for you to find someone you can authentically confess your struggles and your sin and your journey with. That you don't be afraid of entering into that kind of spiritual friendship so that you can be renewed and you can find restoration in your life. That's where I'm heading, okay? So if you're sitting here being like, oh, dear Lord, don't make him do a thing where I have to stand up in front of everyone and confess all of my sins, I'm not saying that. But I am inviting all of us, whatever, whatever space in your walk with Jesus you're at, whether you're right at the very beginning and your life is a mess, whether you've been working with God for a long time and things feel pretty put together and you feel like God has been really working on you and there's not a lot gross or wrong going on, from, from that end all the way to the other, there is always space to choose to be honest with another brother or sister in Christ so that you can hear the words spoken back to you. If this is true, if you've confessed these things, you are forgiven. Because the truth of it is, when we hold on to this stuff, the guilt of like the screw up from five, six, seven, 20 years ago, it just eats you alive. There are some of you here that have made that, made that choice years and years ago and you are stuck in it and you, you are not free. God does not desire to you, for you to be in bondage over that guilt. If you've not confessed that or shared that story with someone, do so so that they can look you in the eyes and say, you are free. The guilt has been washed by the blood of Jesus. You do not need to carry that guilt anymore. You don't need to like be hiding in church and sitting in the, in the quiet corner. You can be fully integrated into the community. You are restored. You are free. And when we share that kind of burden with others, that's when we can discover that God truly forgives us. We all believe in forgiveness, but sometimes it just doesn't feel sticky enough. But when we actually talk about it, we discover this is real. God really, truly loves me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Um, we're going to sing one song. During this song, I invite you to consider where are you at in the call for, your, for us to live a confessing life? Where are you at in that? Do you hold off until you're cornered and then you confess? Or do you jump in early? Do you get, get in front of it and say, you know what, I've been thinking these thoughts, I've been wrestling with these feelings, I've been behaving in these ways, and you enter in early. My challenge to all of us is during this next week, prayerfully consider, give time to consider what it would look like for you to share honestly with a brother or sister in faith, choosing that person wisely, and sharing about what's going on in your life. Don't be afraid of the fears of man like Saul was. Saul was unable to get to that place that David was, where he just was honest. This is the, this is the beautiful thing about the faith that we have as Christians. 
that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is, this is the gospel. This is beautiful. And if you've not yet in your own personal life participated in that decision, maybe you've come to church forever and you've never actually said, Lord, I, I confess. I, I'm a sinner. Then I invite you during the song to make that declaration in your heart to confess to the Lord, I have sinned and ask for his forgiveness. And then choose to reach out to somebody and talk about it so that that forgiveness can land deep in your heart and you can be free from the guilt that maybe you've been living in for years. Would we sing this song? Let's sing this song together.